Hey there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the senior pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. And the sermon you're about to listen to is based on 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It's a strange story of Naaman, a general for the king of Aram. Uh, and I'll unpack it a little bit in the story. It's not a familiar story, my hunch, to many of us, but Naaman is a general in, a, in the army that's the enemy of the Israelites, but he has a skin condition, and so he goes to Israel seeking Elisha, the prophet, in order to get healed. And uh, this, so it's interesting how it plays out and what it might offer for us as people of faith today. The sermon title is called All Are Welcome, which also happens to be our song that we sing every Sunday when we gather for communion, or every every first Sunday when we gather for communion. Uh, it's one of the enduring themes of what it means to us to be Williamsburg Baptist Church today. We, um, this past Sunday when we gathered, as we do every month, we like to remind ourselves that we believe in an open table, that all are welcome to gather for communion, regardless of belief or background, denominational affiliation or otherwise. We believe that the communion table is not our table, not Williamsburg Baptist Church's table, not a Baptist table, it is Christ's table, and so all are welcome to gather at it and to receive the elements as re we remember um, Jesus in his life and ministry and death and resurrection. We really are glad you're listening and hope this is a helpful sermon to you this week. If you want to find out more about what we've got going on, you can head over to williamsburgbaptist.com. You can shoot me an email at pastor at williamsburgbaptist.com if you'd like to catch up or share a prayer concern or have any questions about our congregation. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram. Again, really are glad you're listening. Hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Strange story today. Carol job well done on the reading. Thank you so much. We talked earlier this week about how to pronounce the main character's name. And in Hebrew, you would probably say Naaman, but we decided in good southern Virginia dialect, we're just going to say Naaman. So that's what I'm going to use for the sermon. So Naaman is a commander of the army of Aram. And Aram is roughly uh, analogous to where the modern-day country of Syria is. It's adjacent to Israel and the north. And at this point in the history of the Jewish people, the nation has been divided into two. There's Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Israel, the northern kingdom where Elisha lives, the prophet, is at war with Aram. And so the way that, in which the story unfolds is incredibly unexpected. Enemies collaborate with one another for healing and wholeness. Power dynamics are upended by people who otherwise would be powerless. And through it all, the sovereign God of the universe is glorified. Even this strange story may yet have a word of encouragement to offer us today. So it just so happens that Naaman is a great military leader of Israel's bitter enemies, Aram. Naaman happens to be in good rapport with the king of Aaron because of his military successes. But there's a twist from the outset of this story. Naaman happens to have a skin disease of some sort. Some translations have rendered it leprosy, but it's not what we would think of as leprosy today. 
perhaps maybe like a skin blanch or something. And it's curious that in Israelite law and custom, someone with a skin condition would have to stay outside the camp for fear of contagion. So Naaman really is twice an outsider. He's the general of their hated enemies, and he also has the skin condition. Then there's a young enslaved Israelite girl who serves Naaman's wife. The text says that Aram raiding parties have captured her from across the border in Israel. And for all intents and purposes, she's a nobody, aside from being a reminder of the ways in which war affects real people on the ground because she's been captured. But sure enough, she shows up and plays a vital role in the story. She speaks up. She uses what little power she has to give voice to what she knows is true. That there's a miracle-working prophet in Israel named Elisha who could heal her owner, Naaman. And not only could, but she seems confident that he would if only Naaman was there with him. And so Naaman goes to his boss, the king of Aram. But instead of sending him with his blessing to the king, uh, to the prophet Elisha, he loads him up with cartloads of riches, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten fancy sets of clothing, according to what Carol read. I let Google do the math for me last night, and it's something like $3 million worth of goods that the king of Aram sends to the king of Israel. Maybe not as much as the Powerball jackpot, but it's still a lot, right? Next Sunday is Pledge Sunday, by the way. Did I mention that? (laughs) It's a monetary bribe. This is how power works. I'm a king, you're a king. The assumption is that the only way that we're going to get this deal done is by trans, uh, transactional opportunity, by sending you large sums of money. And the contribution of the servant girl is lost in the mix. So the king of Israel receives this letter and this hoard of wealth from Naaman, and he's immediately suspicious. He thinks it's a trick or a taunt that Aram's king is somehow trying to goad him into a fight. So he tears his clothes because of this misunderstanding. But Elisha, this prophet, here's what has happened. And you may or may not recall, but Elisha, the prophet, is the protege of another prophet you may have heard of, Elijah, both prophets of the northern kingdom, both prophets who have the power to work miracles. And so Elisha sends word to Naaman, who ends up coming to his door with his entourage of horses and chariots. And this is the instruction that Elisha gives him. Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Sounds simple enough, right? But Naaman thinks it's too simple. He gets angry, in fact, because he thinks it's a joke. He's predisposed towards mistrust. He assumes the worst from an Israelite, and rightfully so because they're at war. But most importantly, he can't imagine that something so simple could heal him from his disease and make him whole. It's as if he says, so that's it? You're saying I just need to take a bath? Are you calling me a dirty Aram, Aramean? Besides, Aram has way better rivers, better than the Jordan. I mean, have you seen the Jordan River? It's kind of muddy. Lo and behold, servants interject themselves again into the story to nudge things along. This time, Naaman's servants say, 
hey, if this prophet Elijah had asked you to do something difficult, then you would have done it on the off chance that you would be healed. Why not at least try this and see what happens? And so he does. He goes to the Jordan. He washes himself seven times. And sure enough, he's healed. So much so that the text says his skin was restored like that of a young boy. He goes back to Elisha with gratitude in his heart and concludes with a confession of faith in the God of Israel. And they lived happily ever after. The end. The story ends so neatly you could just about put a bow on it. It's curious that Naaman disappears from the narrative after the end of this chapter. We have no idea what happens to him after this story. But I can't help but wonder what happens next. Don't you want to know how this moment shapes the rest of his life? Not only the experience of being healed, but the experience of receiving kindness and generosity and welcome from his bitter enemies and healing from his bitter enemies. I looked ahead because I couldn't help myself. Naaman isn't mentioned again, but Aram continues to be in conflict with Israel. In fact, they invade in the very next chapter. But I have to believe that the next time Naaman goes into battle, he pauses for a moment and thinks, every Israelite can't be bad. There are some of them who showed me mercy and kindness when I needed it. Maybe Naaman even relinquishes control of the army because he can no longer stomach the thought of fighting against these people who cared enough to help him out. This one event might not be enough to put an end to the warfare between the two countries, but I still believe that love and kindness are the right thing to do. Love and kindness are radical and subversive in this context. They're like a stone dropped into a pond that ripples outward with love and kindness from one person to another, ultimately changing the world. I was talking the other day to the young woman who cuts my hair. So she listens to this podcast sometimes, so I'm not going to give away any personal information, but uh, we have wonderful conversations together. She and her girlfriend just moved into a new house, actually kind of close to the neighborhood that I live in, and we were talking about our neighbors. And she said that, for the most part, she really likes her neighbors. But she's really struggling with these neighbors in this one house directly across the street from them. She said that a couple of Amazon packages have gone missing under suspicious circumstances. And she told me that these neighbors have a couple of political signs in her front yard that make her feel anxious for the sake of her girlfriend. We talked about it for a little bit, the awkwardness of neighbors you don't trust or who you assume dislike you, and maybe even have it out for you. But as we talked, we wondered, what would it look like in this situation to lead with kindness and concern for their well-being instead of just assuming What would it look like if she walked over to introduce herself and took them cookies or something as a small gesture of goodwill and warmth? What might it look like if everyone in our world would assume the best and lead with kindness and love rather than anger and hate and violence? Naaman has every reason to distrust the Israelites. And the Israelites in the story have every reason to mistrust him as a commander of their enemies. 
The battle lines have been drawn in this conflict. It's a two-party system, and they do not like each other. There are insiders and outsiders, and it's us versus them, right? And yet, strangely enough, the walls they have erected between them collapse in this story, and the boundaries begin to fade. And instead of being embittered and angry and violent towards one another, everyone in the story begins to lean into the tension, and healing begins to happen. Naaman and the others cross boundaries in order for him to become whole. And as best as I can tell, he would not have been healed if he wasn't willing to step out of his comfort zone and connect with someone of a different nationality than him. Boundary crossing can be salvific. I'll be honest, as I wrestle with this text this past week, in many ways this text doesn't make any sense at all, especially in our increasingly partisan world. It doesn't make any sense to me in a world where Russia invades Ukraine and politicians run horrid attack ads against each other. It doesn't make any sense unless it happens to be that God doesn't just care about my tribe and the people in my own tribe. Do you get me? The story doesn't make sense unless it's revealing a God who is so much bigger and more loving than we've begun to imagine. A God who loves not just the Israelites, but all people. This story is revealing an outward-looking God, a universalizing God who cares about the people of Aram and everywhere. It's not just a God of Jews or Christians or Baptists or Methodists, but a God who cares about the entire world. And a God who chooses to bless Abraham's descendants so that they might in turn bless the world. A God who says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself even when that neighbor is your enemy. Love, love, love. It's curious. There's an epilogue to this story. Naaman disappears from the biblical narrative after this chapter, but Jesus mentions him again in Luke chapter 4. Luke mentions Naaman to disrupt the thinking of his fellow Jewish people, some of whom must have expected a Messiah from God who would come only to bless their own tribe and their own people. And Jesus says, wait, wait, wait. Wait, you may think that I'm only here for you or that I love only you, but I'm not. You may think that I'm here to prove that you finally have it all figured out or that God loves you more than anyone else, but that's not it either. You may think that God is going to make it abundantly clear through me that you all are the insiders and everyone else is an outsider and is excluded from God's love, but you're way off base there. Through me, Jesus, God is welcoming everyone to the table even the folks we least expect. Williamsburg Baptist Church, I guess you've noticed our doors are open. People keep walking in, and that is a beautiful thing, is it not? 
If this is your first time here this morning, you're not alone. I can look around this room and see folks that weren't in this congregation a year ago or even six months ago. The thing about open doors, though, is we don't have any idea who's going to walk in. I couldn't have predicted that many of you would walk in the doors, but here we are. And it seems like just once you're starting to get comfortable in your pew, you turn around and someone else walks in the door right after you. And it could be anyone. It could be someone who votes differently than you on Tuesday. It could be someone with different theological beliefs, different ethnic or racial background. It could be the general of the Aramean army, for all I know. And we might think that Naaman, like Naaman, that reconciliation and redemption are going to take a big, grand gesture, and only then will everything be made right. But really what it takes is just a willingness to show up and be kind and to lead with love and recognize that we're all in this together. It's messy, but we need each other desperately. And through these same doors that people keep walking in, We're going to cross back over the threshold and go out into the world to show the world and show people what love looks like in action and how to love across boundaries and party lines and how to love neighbor and enemy and friend. And in doing so, folks, we're going to transform not only Williamsburg, but the entire world. And it all starts here with the willingness to be able to lean into the tension and love across borders and boundaries. It all starts here. Thanks be to God. Amen.